0: this is God's word. When he had gone out, that is Judas, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is God's word. If you wanted to work out whether let's say a school had a genuine sense of love and community amongst that school, then probably the easiest way to find out whether there's a sense of love amongst the children in the school would be to then spend some time observing the school to see whether the children got along, whether there was respect, whether there was mingling amongst students. And so you might then go to a school at lunchtime and look at what happens on the playground. And probably what you would see is you would see uh, kids playing basketball together, You might see some soccer kids. You might see some uh, kids sitting under a tree just talking about what went on or maybe doing some art. You would see younger kids. Rubik's cubes seem to be back in certainly a covenant. They might be playing with Rubik's cubes together. And it would be very easy on a uh, superficial level to look at that uh, community and say, wow, what a really loving community they have. Everyone's playing together and getting along. And at a very surface level, you might be right. But as we get a bit deeper into assessing what love actually is, I would argue that that's not such a loving community because probably what's going to happen is you would never see the basketball kids one day playing basketball and the next day deciding, I think I might sit with those girls under the tree in a different year just to um, get to know them and care about them and find out what's going on. Nor would the Rubik's Cube kids come to play with the basketballers, nor would the basketball kids let them play. See, the reason why there's a sense of love on most schoolyard playgrounds, a superficial sense, is because people tend to click together based upon likes and dislikes and demographics, and then they stay out of each other's way. And that's how there's a sense of love. But what we understand with the love that we see in Jesus Christ is that the church must have a love that is totally different to that. The church must have a love where there are no clicks, where the love transcends likes and dislikes and demographics and cultures, where the love that we have is enough to make every member of that church have a deep desire to commit to loving and caring and knowing and serving every other member regardless of whether they like basketball or Rubik's Cubes or whatever it is. A love that transcends schoolyard politics. This is the kind of love that Jesus talks about. So our community of love must not simply be a community because we segregate into a young adults group and a men's hiking group, and there's a sense of community because we're doing things that we all like. No, the love that we see in the gospel of Christ that Jesus is calling us to is a love that transcends all of that, a love that comes to someone else in the community, and you have nothing on paper that would cause you to be um, affectionate toward one another, but you both have a common allegiance to Jesus Christ, and that is more than enough for you to love that person with a love that the world has never known. And so that is the love that we wanna look at today. This is the love that Jesus begins to instruct his followers toward as we look at John 13. Here, Jesus is coming into the farewell discourse. The next few chapters are gonna look at what it is to love one another and Jesus is preparing his disciples uh, for when he's gonna depart and then how their lives must look as his followers. And for Jesus to depart, what we see is that he must be glorified. This is the prerequisite for Jesus to then depart, not merely in his cross, but to go uh, to the Father's right hand to ascend. Jesus must therefore be glorified. So before we get to the love within the Christian community, what I want to do is look at this glory that we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ here, this glory that Jesus begins to talk about in verse 31. From verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. This is talking about the shared glory that the Father has with the Son, the shared glory that has existed for all eternity. So Jesus is saying here in verse 31, The Father is going to be glorified in the Son, And then verse 32, the Son is going to be glorified in the Father. It's a shared glory. We will read this in John 17 in verse 5, where Jesus gives the high priestly prayer and he says to the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before anything existed, there was this glory that the triune God had, that the Father, Son and Spirit share together. And what we are seeing is not a a new glory, but rather this eternal glory being revealed to the world. God is showing his glory in a particular way. And what is astounding here is that this glorification is seen in the humiliation of the cross. This is where Jesus is going. He's going to the cross, he's going to a place of utter shame and humility. And this is what is going to show the glory of God. This is what Jesus means when he says, now, now that Judas has gone to betray me and I'm about to be handed over and go to the cross, now is the time for the father to be glorified in the son and for the son to be glorified in the father. So we see the glory of God on full display. Now, how does the cross show us the glory of God? This is what I want to contemplate for a bit this morning. God's glory is His perfection. Glory is light, it's radiance. The glory of God is His perfection in every way. His divine attributes that would cause awe to fall upon anyone who truly comprehended but an inch of those attributes. His glory is His utter perfection in every way on display. Some have once said that God's glory is like His burning holiness going public, being beamed out to the world. That which is at the center of God, that he is a holy God, finally being displayed in a glorious way. And so a part of God's perfect holy character is that he is the fullness of all his attributes. So he is completely loving and he is completely just. He is perfectly gracious and he is perfectly furious with sin. He's not the sum of all of his parts. He's not a little bit loving and a little bit uh, just and a little bit um, furious. No, he is the perfection of all of these attributes. So we must not project upon God what we experience, which is usually that we kind of have to compromise on love if we're hating someone. If we hate someone, we're not loving them. Or if we love them, then we're sort of diminishing our hatred towards them. Or if you think about a judge before a murderer, and that judge can either punish that murderer and therefore keep a sense of justice, or he can let the murderer go free and show mercy. But either way, he's not going to be able to keep both his justice and his mercy. God is nothing like that. God is nothing like that. He is perfectly just And he is perfectly merciful. And it's through the lens of the cross that we see how God shows these divine attributes all together. So think about the cross and think about what this shows us of the glory of God. At the cross, as the Son is hung there in humiliating fashion, we see God's furious wrath against sin as that sin is punished in His Son. We see God's furious wrath. But we also see God's overwhelming love as he offers up his son in our place to be punished. We also see God's perfect justice because he does not allow sin to go unpunished. And so we see that he is a just God, but then we also see that he is a merciful God because that sin that was punished in Jesus meant that God could be merciful to us who deserve that punishment and therefore we could be free from that punishment as we trust in Jesus Christ. We see God's attributes on display in the cross. It is precisely through the cross that we see the fullest display of God's glory in the Father lovingly giving of his Son and the Son lovingly giving himself for the Father's glory, for that shared glory. We see more of the glory of God as we consider the extent of what this act of humiliation accomplishes. We'll see more of this as we go throughout John's gospel, but consider the extent of what the cross accomplishes for all of humanity who would turn to Jesus Christ. How is it that one man, through one act of humiliation, could atone for billions of people. How is it that that one man in one act, in one life, could atone for countless people throughout history? It is because that one man has a value that surpasses the very best of all humanity put together at once. That one man has a value that surpasses everything. His one act is more valuable than all of the greatest accomplishments that man has ever done and will ever do combined. That one man has a value that surpasses the very best of humanity. And so the value of that one man and that one act is enough to accomplish redemption for every single person in all of human history who would trust in Jesus Christ. Consider the value seen in that one man on the cross accomplishing redemption for countless people who would trust in Jesus Christ. And so the cross really brings us into the theater of God's glory where we see his glory on display. We see the fullest display of his divine attributes in perfect measure. We see his furious wrath. We see his justice. We see his overwhelming compassion. We see his mercy and love toward us as sinners. And we see the immeasurable value. Think about the value Seen in Christ as that one sacrificial life, death and resurrection has sufficient value to cover an immeasurable amount of sin. The blood of Christ so pure to cleanse every ounce of unrighteousness the world has ever known. How treasured Christ is. So this shared glory that we see. The father is glorified in the son as he lovingly gives up his son and he deals with sin. The son is glorified in the father as he lovingly offers himself, showing his love for the father. And then together the father and son are glorified as the cross actually becomes the means by which you and I as sinners are then reconciled and brought into that shared glory. This will be the prayer of Jesus in John 17 where his desire is that the disciples, all who would believe in him, would be with him so that they may see this glory. We're brought into that theater of glory by the work of Christ on the cross. Now for this glory to come about, Jesus has to depart. So this is what Jesus is talking about here in John 13. Not only through his death, But eventually through his ascension, Jesus must depart the world and ascend to the Father at the right hand of the Father to show that the price of sin has been paid for in full. Jesus' resurrection and his ascension show that the Father totally approves of that sacrifice and that death has been defeated and conquered and the Son is now at his rightful place as the heir of all things at the right hand of the Father to show that justice is satisfied. So Jesus must now prepare his disciples for this departure. And so he goes on to say from verse 33, little children, this is a dear affectionate term, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus has said this a few times already in John's gospel. Several months ago, when we were in chapter 7 and 8, Jesus spoke in chapter 7, verse 34. As the Pharisees send officers to arrest him, they're being antagonistic, trying to arrest him. And Jesus says to these people, I am going, uh, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And this is what Jesus is referring to in verse 33, when he says, just as I said to the Jews, He says it again in chapter 8, verse 21, as the Jews continue to be antagonistic toward him. Jesus says, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So these occasions have a far more ominous flavor to uh, the the audience that Jesus is speaking to. Jesus is really using the reality of his departure as a rebuke to the antagonistic Jews, saying, you can't come, you will die in your sin. Now, Jesus' words to the disciples have a very different flavor. Though he's saying, just as I spoke to the Jews, I'm saying to you, it's a very different flavor. It's a very different trajectory as he says this to his disciples. So while he told the Jews in chapter 7 that they're going to seek him and they're not going to find him because they're not trusting in him, he will say to the disciples in chapter 14, just a few verses later in verse 3, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So you can't come with me now, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. You're safe. You're secure in me. And then while he says to the Jews in chapter 8 that you're going to die in your sin, he says to the disciples in chapter 14, verse 19, you will see me again and because I live, you will live. My life is your life. You're not going to die in your sin. You're secure in me. See, although there is a reality that the disciples cannot come to be with Christ immediately, their trajectory is ultimately toward that final goal namely to be with Christ in unbreakable intimacy. That's their goal. That's their trajectory. See, as Jesus talks about where he is going, it's more about a relational intimacy than a physical proximity. Though, of course, it is about a physical uh, proximity as Jesus is physically no longer on the earth. But really the emphasis here is about a relational proximity. The Jews can't come to where Jesus is because Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father and Jesus is the way to the Father and they're rejecting him, so of course they can't come. There's no way. The disciples have a completely different trajectory to the antagonistic Jews because the disciples have a relational proximity to Jesus. We've just seen in him washing their feet and saying, you are clean. You are uh, washed and sanctified. They are considered his. And here are great words of comfort for believers today. Here are wonderful words of comfort as we think about this trajectory that Jesus gives to the disciples. Our ultimate hope is that we are on the very same trajectory as Jesus is going to share with his disciples in chapter 14. That is our ultimate hope, that we are moving toward that place of unbreakable intimacy, here is such a, a profound truth and a, a desperate need for us in this world that just shoves our face to try and make us think that everything that we need is in this world. For Christians and non-Christians alone, this desire to have everything here and now and this failure to long for this unbreakable intimacy and this moment where we stand in the very presence of our Savior face to face. This is our hope as John will go on to say in his first letter in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Is that a hope for you? To see Christ as he is. For that moment to see the face of Jesus Christ and to be transformed In that instant, here is what sustains us in this life the reality that there is coming a day. There is coming a day where we will be with the Lord. We will be with him in sinlessness. We will be with him without suffering. We will be with him without apathy. We will be with him in unbreakable intimacy. We will be in his very presence with the presence of sin long gone. We will be with him without any shame over our lack of love toward him. That will be long gone and we will be in unbreakable intimacy that somehow will only continue for eternity. That is our hope. And here is the mark of true followers of Jesus. The mark is not that we have a great life now and Jesus helps us to have that. The mark is that we're longing for that greater life. Yes, there are treasures to be had now, but ultimately we are longing for that unbreakable intimacy with the Lord. And so I wonder if that is your comfort today. Now, these comforting words of Jesus that speak of his departure, they are anticipating the commission that Jesus gives to his church. Jesus is preparing his church for that moment where he then sends them into the world to make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them, to teach them. This is the commission that you and I have flowing on from the disciples. And Jesus is preparing his first disciples for that commission to then go into the world and bear witness of everything that he has done. And he gives a clear commandment that ought to be a top priority for his followers after his departure. So look at verse 34. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another... Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Here is something fundamental to the church's existence. The church is to be a place where the love of Christ is seen in the lives of his followers in such a way that it would then point to the love that we have seen in the Father giving his Son upon the cross. So yes, the mission of the church is to proclaim Christ. We want to declare Christ and make him known. But the mission is also that we would then demonstrate the work that Christ has done, namely the redemptive work, we would demonstrate that in our own lives that would reflect that transformation, that would reflect that redemption. Now, if we think about what Christ is asking us to hear, it is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Think about what Christ is really asking us here. Notice the condition of this love. We're not simply told to love one another. We're told to love just as he loved us. That's an incredible love. That's a perfect love. Jesus loved with utter perfection, and now he says, you do the same. How are you going with that? How are you going with loving just as Christ loved you. It is a mind-blowing reality. D.A. Carson says of this, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, but it is profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. How well are you loving as Christ loved with utter selflessness? This is an incredible ask. And though it is in one sense impossible to meet for who can truly love, who who has that value to then give of himself to love, it's such a, a near impossible standard to love as Christ loved. And yet it is the standard that we are to strive toward. We do not lower the bar. No, we continue to strive toward that. And the wonderful thing is that Christ does not call his followers to this without equipping them with his very spirit to then strive toward this goal. So what does this love look like in our community, that is in the church? Well, let me quickly recap the three aspects of Christ's love that we looked at when we looked at John 13, verse 1. These will be very brief to look at these three aspects of Christ's love. And then I want to give three further loves that we should uh, we can expand upon that we see in the work of the cross. So firstly, just these three aspects of Christ's love that we looked at in John 13, verse 1. Number one, he shows a particular love. Christ's love is a particular love. He comes to his particular people. He comes to his own sheep Or when Jesus prays in John 17, he's specific to say, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for my disciples and all who would believe in them. Christ comes to his particular people. Notice even the particularity even here. Jesus is telling us to love one another so that people would know that you are my disciples. This is to do with disciples of Jesus. Yes, Christians are called to love our neighbor, that is everyone. Of course, we're called to love everyone. But there is a particular love that Christians are to have amongst one another. So Paul says in Galatians 6.10, do good to all people, but especially the household of faith. There's a priority to particular people. Secondly, After being a particular love, Christ's love is a sympathetic love. That was a beautiful uh, reality to look at. Christ's love is sympathetic in that he is with us in our sufferings. Sympathy is with suffering. Christ shows that he is with us in our suffering because he entered into suffering. And then he is now at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, a perfect high priest who is able to sympathize with us in every way. Now, we likewise are called to love one another within the church in a sympathetic way. That is to say, we are to be with people in their suffering. We don't necessarily have to enter into that suffering to be with them, but we are nonetheless with them. We mourn with those who mourn. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 12, verse 26, if one member suffers, we all suffer together. That's literally to say, if one member suffers, we are sympathetic together. We suffer together. And finally, Christ's love is a persistent love. John says he loved them to the end. He loved them to his goal. Christ loved his sheep all the way through the cross, all the way through the horrors of the cross of Christ. Jesus loved his own. And if his love persisted, this is a wonderful comfort, if his love persisted to us, enduring the horrors of the cross, while we were enemies, how much more will his love persist now that he has purchased us? What assurance do we have that his love will, of course, persist? If it endured through the cross, it will endure through every single one of life's hurdles and obstacles now. And likewise, our love is to persist toward those in our community. Now, let's identify and finish with three further ways in which we are to love based upon the love that we see in Christ, particularly the love that we see in the cross of Christ. So firstly, we are to love with impartiality. Our love is to be an impartial love. We saw this so clearly when we looked at Jesus washing Judas's feet. Jesus washed the disciples' feet and he washed the very person whom he knew was about to betray him to a horrible death and he washed his feet. Let me, for those who might pick up on what seems like a um, a paradox between Christ's love being particular and then impartial, given that impartial comes from particular or not being particular, so I'm saying his love is particular and non-particular. Let me give some clarity to that now. Christ does have a particular love for his sheep. That's an undeniable truth. Christ comes to his own, he says. He has a particular love, but let's remember the reason why that love comes. His love comes to his sheep because of nothing in particular in and of themselves. There is nothing in particular in you that makes you more worthy than anyone else. The gospel flattens everyone out to say we all fall gloriously short of the glory of God. There's nothing to make us partial to God's Love. His love is freely offered to us on the basis of his own love. That's the basis of his love being given. So in this sense, Christ's love is impartial because his love does not come to us because of anything worthy within us. His love does not come to us because we are of a higher ethnicity, because we have a better culture, because we have a better gender, because of any like or dislike. His love, as we see in the gospel, comes to us because of the mercy of God. Because of his gracious love, he sets his affections upon his people because he loves them. That's a love we can rest in. So, in this sense, there is nothing that we have within us that would cause God to be partial to us. So, therefore, his love comes impartially. To all who recognize that they have nothing to make God partial to them. Should you realize that you have nothing within you to make God partial to you and you come to the foot of the cross and you recognize you're a wretched sinner and you turn to Jesus Christ, then his love is showered upon you just the same way as anyone else. What a glorious reality. Now, how, how might we love impartially within the Christian community if this is the love that we see in Christ and he says now you love just as I have loved you how might we love impartially in the Christian community well we make it our ambition to know and care and love all people within the church without distinction And we make it our goal, we make it our ambition to love impartially. This has to be a conscious goal within each and every one of us because if this is not a conscious goal, then it is too easy to form clicks. It's too easy to click together based upon likes and dislikes with those who we naturally get along with, and we end up just like a schoolyard where it appears that we have a genuine sense of love, but the only reason is because the people who love theology don't talk to the people who are struggling with their theology. That's not love in the Christian community. Love transcends All of that, here is a tangible reason, though we've spoken about this before, but a tangible reason why we don't segregate ourselves into smaller groups based upon age or demographics, because that only furthers the partiality that people have. We don't naturally need to do that because people are naturally gonna do that. We need to naturally push against that because we're not prone to that. We're prone to click together, so we need to make a conscious goal not to click together or rather click together as one whole body. So a tangible way that we love with impartiality is to have this conscious goal to love everyone. So a real practical example, I think this is very achievable in a church of our size. It's a worthy goal that everyone could have to have every other person in the church into their home for a meal at least once every year. That's not a difficult thing to do. You would only have to do it probably once every second week and you could have every single person in your house. That's a really worthy goal. We've never really had teenagers amongst our congregation, but even teenagers, it's a worthy goal for teenagers to think I'm actually going to have a genuine relationship with that 50 year old woman or with that older guy. Now, I think it's appropriate to do this more based upon men to men and women to women, but it's a wonderful thing when teenagers and uh, when a a 15-year-old girl and a 50-year-old woman actually have a genuine relationship together. That's a wonderful thing in this world. It shows a level of impartiality. And so the church must push against this natural desire that we have to be partial toward those who we naturally are inclined towards and rather we should have an impartiality to actually make a conscious goal to ensure we are loving and caring and serving every other person in the church. Secondly, that's to love impartially. Secondly, we are to love sacrificially. The love of Christ is, of course, sacrificial. We see that in the son sacrificing himself. It's a sacrifice, Now, the immediate context of Jesus loving the disciples is where he washes their feet, which was a task of utter humiliation. In one sense, it was a sacrifice because never would you have someone of such a high status doing such a lowly task. You would never have that. And yet Jesus lowers himself to wash their feet. And it is a picture to the greater picture of uh, sacrifice and humiliation, where Jesus suffers on the cross in humiliating fashion. As Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for their friends, than to sacrifice themselves. So how are we to love sacrificially? We must be willing to be inconvenienced. We must be willing to be inconvenienced. We live in a culture of convenience. We live in a culture where we try to be as comfortable as possible and we're trying to appear as virtuous as possible without actually compromising any of our comfort. That's the, the, the culture we live in. We, on the other hand, must be willing to be inconvenienced to love sacrificially. So Galatians 6.2, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you're going to bear a burden, you literally have to take on a burden. You have to become burdened. You have to become inconvenienced, in a sense, if you're going to love and bear burdens of people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage that gets read out at weddings all the time, love does not insist on its own way. Literally, love does not seek the things of self. Love is not self-seeking, rather it's sacrificial. It's other-centered. It's willing to be inconvenienced. So we must be willing to have our schedules inconvenienced as that brother or sister has a need that pops up last minute. We must be willing to be inconvenienced in this sense. We must be willing to be inconvenienced on cold Canberra nights to get out of our warm house, to drive and gather to pray with God's people. It seems in some sense ridiculous to call that an inconvenience. It's such a low thing. But let's recognize we're in such a culture of comfort that perhaps for some of us it will feel like an inconvenience to have to get out and gather again. We must be willing to love sacrificially. I remember Mark Dever once talking about His church, which probably has a lot of similarities, except for the fact it's about 100 times bigger, but a lot of similarities in in theological sense and in the types of people that would come. And in his church, he would have people who love reading Puritan literature and exploring deep, deep doctrines. And he would say to them, "If, if you're not willing to inconvenience yourself by driving an hour out of the way to take an elderly church member to church, then I don't think you're saved. I don't think you're a Christian. Sure, you can read the very best of Richard Baxter and all of the Puritans, but if you can't love by inconveniencing yourself a little bit, I would question your salvation. I would question whether you have genuinely come to know this love in Christ. Now, in a world that conditions us to seek convenience and comfort, sacrificial love that glorifies God requires us to be inconvenienced. It requires us to be inconvenienced. And lastly, the love that we must have is to be above all concerned with the glory of God. That's the love that we must have. That's what keeps our love being different to any other community that might have a sense of love or brotherhood like a bikey gang or something like that where there's a genuine sense of commitment to one another. Our love is far different to that. It is concerned with the glory of God. So the love that Christ has for His sheep is one that is above all concerned for His own glory. Jesus came to glorify His Father and to be glorified in the Father. And at the cross, we see that God cares above all else about His glory. He is glorified in the punishment of sin and then He is glorified in the merciful forgiveness of sinners like you and I. If we are to love as Christ loves then we are to be concerned with the glory of God, which means that we will be required to address sin in one another's lives. It means we will hold each other accountable to growing in holiness. It means we will ask one another how our walk with the Lord is going, whether we want to use the Christianese language or whatever. It means we will genuinely check in with one another to see how we're going following Jesus Christ. This is why we intentionally stir one another on to be holy, to pursue righteousness, because that glorifies God. If a loving community never addresses sin, never contemplates the deep things of Christ, or never prays for the Lord to show his glory, then it is probably not a Christian community. There's probably not a, a genuine love that exists. The church must be concerned with the glory of God and God is glorified as His people walk in a manner of holiness. He says, be holy for I am holy. And that means we must be concerned with the glory of God. And here is where, as I, as, as I do indeed finish, uh, we must be rightly We must rightly understand what Jesus says here in verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know you are my disciples. If you have this love, all people will know you are my disciples. Now, too many, uh, whether well-meaning or naive Christians, would use this and say, see, all we have to do is love one another and then the world will love us. People will know that we're his disciples. Jesus never says that. He says, they'll know you're my disciples. And then what does he say about his disciples? Well, the world hated me and you're my disciples, so the world's going to hate you. So when they know that you're my disciple, they're probably going to hate you. You're probably not going to win yourself any favors by having this love amongst yourself. Yes, they're going to know your disciples, just like Soviet communists knew who the disciples of Jesus were before they killed them. Sure, at times, that love will be attractive to people. And there's probably something going wrong if at least in some way it's not recognized as attractive, right? There are, are objective ways we can see that it's attractive to love sacrificially, to show no partiality. This is still desirable in the world. But let's not be naive into thinking that all we have to do is love one another and then everyone will come flocking. Rather, it will be a sign that we are genuine followers of Jesus. It will be a sign that our allegiance is to Christ And we will remember that we are not called to have a love amongst ourselves that always looks attractive to society. Rather, we are called to have a love amongst ourselves that is consistent with God's standard of love. And that is concerned with the glory of God. So we are to love impartially. We are to love sacrificially. And we are to love in a way that is concerned with the glory of God of God. And the, the foundation of this love is always resting in the love of Christ. That's the foundation. Lest this become a burdensome task that we're doing to try and appear loving before God, the only way we will have this love is if we rest in the love that is poured out upon us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we will keep this love. Our love will only ever extend horizontally to one another as we rightly gaze vertically and look upon the Son who loved us.